there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. As I was sitting here, I was thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful about six months from now if this group would be cut in half because half of you had gotten married? <laughs> well, I think I actually heard some male voices say amen as well as women. But I do want to tell you that it's always a very special privilege for me to speak to a singles group. It doesn't happen very often, and I never want to miss the opportunity because I do, my heart does go out to you. I've been single more than I've been married, even though some of you know that I have been married three times, and husband number three is back there, and he's fairly healthy this morning. I'm hoping he's going to outlast me. <laughs> but I was the kind of a girl that guys were not particularly interested in, in either high school or college. And as I got toward graduation, my senior year in college, I entered into what we used to call at Wheaton College, senior panic because if a girl doesn't find a husband on a Christian college campus where there's all these unattached, good-looking guys, uh, the chances are going to be greatly reduced thereafter. Anyway, as you know, God has given me not one, not two, but three husbands. I've had more than one woman say to me, now why in the world will the Lord give you three husbands when he's never even given me a date? <laughs> and I say, well, how do I know? I have no idea why God would give me three husbands, but I'm very sympathetic, I think, with all of you. It is natural, it is perfectly normal that you should desire marriage, and I can't think of a more logical place where you would find a suitable sp spouse than in a church group like this, so I'm very glad that you're here. And I want to ask you, first of all, do you consider singleness a gift or a problem? It is a gift for today. And let's remember that God gives us one day at a time. Yesterday is absolutely gone. It is none of your business. It is finished, period. It belongs to God. God is in the past, and tomorrow doesn't belong to you yet. God is already there. He is timeless, but he has given you this one day. And you would not be here this morning if you were not single. So here I am to talk to a group of single people, and I would like to help you to see that your singleness on this particular Sunday here in Texas is the will of God. But that doesn't mean that it's the will of God for you to remain single very much longer. For you women, it's a very different message that I would have. You're not to go out looking for guys. Any of you that have read my books know that I try to stick very closely to what the Bible says about the distinctions between men and women. And you men were made to be the initiators. And you have to take the bull by the horns, and you've got to trust God, and you have to take the tremendous, scary risk of being rejected. And it takes a strong man to take that kind of a risk. 
But we women are supposed to have a gentle and quiet spirit, and we are to be responders, not initiators. Eve declared her independence back in the Garden of Eden. She decided to take the bull by the horns, as it were, to do her own thing. And there was one thing, as you remember, that was forbidden in the Garden of Eden. Everything else was perfect. Everything was perfectly designed for the blessing of Adam and Eve. Here was a perfect man, a perfect woman, and a perfect garden. But Eve decided that God was cheating them of the one thing in the whole world that would make her truly happy. That one thing was that particular kind of fruit that Jesus had, that God had forbidden them to take. And so she declared her independence, in effect. She said, I'm going to do my own thing. She believed what Satan had told her, that God was trying to cheat her. And that pattern goes right through womanhood, down through the ages. We very often get the idea that God is trying to cheat us of the one thing that we feel convinced would make us happy. And so she disobeyed God. She went to her husband and suggested that he join her in the eating of this forbidden fruit. And what did Adam do? He wimped out. <laughs> it was Adam's responsibility before God to protect this woman. He should have dug in his heels and said, no way. But he said what men are prone to say, well, if that's what the little lady wants, then that's what the little lady's going to get. And they just wimp out and go, go along with it. But we have been in a mess ever since, haven't we? And Satan is going to see to it that the mess gets more and more complicated. And I was just thinking this morning of something that I read, that before the bicycle was invented in England, every man married within five miles of his home. After the bicycle was invented, it was increased to 25 miles. But of course, now there are absolutely no limits. There's probably hardly a person in this room that hasn't been somewhere overseas, not to mention all over the United States. And so we have this staggering array of choices. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why you men are having such a terrible time settling down, making up your minds, that God has indeed called you to be married. You know, Paul said, when I became a man, I put away childish things. It disturbs me on weekends when I look out the window from our home. We live on the coast, and quite often we see a bunch of scuba divers out there. Men, most of them, I would guess, in their 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, they've got a lot of time on their hands, apparently, on Saturdays and Sundays. What's happening to their families? Do they have families? Have they not gotten around to that yet? But people are scuba diving and hang gliding and bungee jumping and doing all sorts of things like that, which may be fun, but may not have anything to do with the will of God. Now, don't go out of here and say, Elizabeth Elliot says it's a sin to bungee jump. <laughs> but I want to challenge you. Are, how serious are you about the will of God? It is clear in Scripture that God wants most men to be married. You have to take that very solemn responsibility of being husbands and fathers, and you will answer to God if you have not been willing to do that. 
First, I'll, I'll give you f five brief things that I want to discuss first, and then I'm going to try to get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty of how this business of finding the right mate may take place. First of all, all of us need to accept the portion that God has given us today. And I always want to say this to the young women, many of who, whose hearts are breaking because they long to be wives and mothers, and that is a legitimate longing. But of course, it is in the will of God that some men and some women should remain single. And how I thank God for the men and women in my life who have blessed me because they have been in a position to do things that married people are not in a position to do. So I'm not knocking singleness per se. But today, as I've already said, this is the day that God has given you. Only today. He has not given you tomorrow yet, and yesterday is gone. Psalm 16.5 says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup and have made my lot secure. To me, that is a very stabilizing, strengthening, calming principle. The Lord has assigned me my portion and my cup and has made my lot secure. You know that hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. I asked you the question, is singleness a gift or a problem? It is a gift. It's not meant to be a problem, but it may be a very short-lived gift. Are you prepared to accept this day's singleness, to say, yes, Lord? A young man said to me one time, I'm 20 years old. He said, I have kept my virginity. I thank God for that, but he said, I don't know if I've got the strength to keep it till I'm 30. And I said, you, don't, you, can, you, you need not expect the strength to keep it until you're 30. You're 20 today. Will you keep it until midnight tonight? Well, he said, I guess I can do that. It's only one day at a time, isn't it? Let's not predict disasters. Let's accept the portion that the Lord has given us today. And that takes trust, doesn't it? Do you really trust God? Do you really believe that God has your very best interest at heart? Of course he does. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he calls you by name, and he wants to lead you. Secondly, the surrender of desire. Not only your acceptance of today's portion, which is necessary for all of us, but the surrender of desires which God has not given us up to this point. God has not granted us the thing which we may be desiring more than anything else. But above all, I would hope that I'm speaking to an audience who are able to say with honesty, thy will be done. Not my will, but thine be done. Are you prepared to trust God for that fulfillment of your desire, whatever that desire may be. I was so glad to hear that you're going to be emphasizing prayer, because that's the one component which I think is most sadly lacking among Christian young people. They're not really doing a whole lot of plain, hard, faithful 
praying about the matter of marriage. I have pretty strong suspicion that the women are doing a better job at that than the men. But do you remember when Abraham sent his servant to look for a wife for Isaac? What did the servant do? He went to the one place in the village where it was uh, possible to observe women with propriety, and that was the village well. I can't think of a better place where a man can observe women with propriety than a church group. You're here, here are all these earnest, honest people who certainly must have some interest in God or you wouldn't have bothered to come. Why should you not expect that God would find the right wife for you in the church that you go to? Anyway, what did the, what did the servant do? He went to the village well and it says he prayed silently and watched quietly. And those are the keys. Pray and watch. And by observation, you can learn far more than by intimacy. And my heart breaks when I hear the sad stories of young people getting into intimacy and then breakup. And that is exactly what the dating game establishes. Intimacy and breakup, intimacy and breakup, intimacy and breakup. And then they get married. It's the same story all over again, intimacy and breakup. Surrender of desire. Thy will, Lord, not mine. Maybe you men are looking for a particular kind of woman. You have an image in your mind of the face that you're seeking. You haven't seen it so far. How about just saying, Lord, I'll take your choice for me. Number three, conduct. Isaiah 58.10 is a passage that I always would like young people to uh, consider. Isaiah 58.10. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will arise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame, and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. That's a very good passage for single people who are prone to sink into self-pity and worry and anxiety over this one big issue that looms so greatly on their horizon when Here's a totally different approach. You are to pour yourself out for the hungry, for the oppressed, and then your light will arise in the darkness. The Lord will guide you. He will satisfy your needs. He will strengthen you, and you will become like a watered garden. I have traveled around quite a bit and met a good many singles groups, and often I discover that the primary emphasis is social. Get together and have fun. And there's nothing wrong with getting together and having fun, but is the primary emphasis on pouring yourself out for other people, for the hungry, satisfying the needs of the oppressed. There's a spiritual principle involved here. When we begin pouring ourselves out for other people, forgetting about ourselves, forgetting about our desires and the deprivations which we feel that God has assigned to us, something wonderful happens. And you know, one of the many people who have blessed my life 
was Amy Carmichael. She believed before she was 20 years old that God was calling her to be single for the rest of her life. She didn't know why, but she did remain single. I think she probably had at least three proposals. But she did a work in South India that she could not possibly have done had she been married. And I could name a good many other women who, whom I have considered spiritual mothers who have never married, and a good many widows who have been just like salt and light in my life, even though they did not have husbands. So the conduct of single people is described. I think this is a relevant passage, of course not limited to single people by any means, but one that all of us need to be aware of, that this spiritual principle goes into operation when we begin pouring ourselves out, forgetting about our own longings, then the Lord will satisfy you and he will make you like a watered garden. Number four is obedience. Crucial. If you really honestly believe that you're a Christian, what is the proof of love? You can sing about it, and you've just been singing about it, Love, 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 with that Texas accent. <laughs> we don't say it like that up where I come from. You can sing about it. You can write poetry about it. You can talk about it. You can pray about it. But that's not what Jesus said is the proof. He said, if you love me, do what I say. Obedience is the sole evidence of true love for Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 says, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, now, that's a sweeping, broad statement. It is God's will that every single one of us should be made holy. But in the very same verse, immediately, Paul puts his finger on a crucial sore point. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And that follows immediately. Perhaps at the top of Paul's list that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Nothing could be more unequivocally clear then that sexual activity outside of the marriage bed is forbidden by God. I would be very naive if I imagined that I'm speaking to a room full of virgins. Some of you have given your virginity away, and you know you don't lose your virginity. I hear that phrase often. Well, I lost my virginity when I was 14. I didn't know any better. You didn't lose it. You gave it away. You let somebody else have it someone who had no right to it. But I have a word for those of you who have given it away. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You can start over. And if you're in a relationship right now 
in which you have allowed intimacy, you have been touching and pawing and perhaps going much further than that. According to God's word, and I speak always, I trust in harmony with what God says, you need to get out of that. You need to stop right now and just tell that person, look, I've been wronging you. We've got to cut this out. Obedience is the proof of love. And number five, what is the call of God to men? Well, God calls men to pray, to lift up holy hands and pray. God calls men to be strong. And I think all three of my husbands have told me that, women, that men are scared to death of women. Now, I've had three very different husbands, all of them Christian men, all of them wonderful men, and Lars, the one that you'll meet at the book table, I've heard him say many times, he said, we're all terrified of women. So you women, you know, just remember that. They're scared to death. They're shaking from head to toe. Now, there may be some here in Texas that are not scared of women. I don't know about that. But it says, be strong. And you just have to take the bull by the horns. My second husband, Addison Leach, said that he, he could hardly ever bring himself to date in high school because he just was absolutely convinced that if any girl ever said yes, it would be because she felt sorry for him. And so he just didn't want to subject her to that. God says that when men become men, they are to put away childish things. That's what Paul said. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Which means taking responsibility. Hard, frightening, difficult responsibility. But whatever happened to trust? One of my life verses is Isaiah, is, uh, Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Now that is a promise, and I hang on to that with, sometimes by my fingernails. When I know that I'm facing something I can't possibly do, I just keep repeating to myself the words of Isaiah. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And Jesus Christ set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem where he knew that he was going to be crucified. He took up the cross. And he says to you and me today, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to be my disciple, you must do three things. Number one, give up your right to yourself. And for some of you men, that may mean giving up your right to getting the woman that you have in your dreams. You have a list of qualifications that you're looking for. And you know Susan, and you know Linda, and you know Patty, and you know all these different girls, and they're great girls, and you love them, and you think they're wonderful, and you start treating them like buddies, and then you girls know you're in big trouble as soon as you become a buddy. But you just have not met the girl that has all 11 of the qualifications that you've decided you have to have. Well, you know, there was a man named Charles Alexander who was the song leader who traveled all over the world with R.A. Tari, a very famous evangelist back in the 19th century. And Alexander was a very young man. He was, I think, probably about 20 when he started traveling as the song leader for this other man's campaigns. 
And Charles Alexander had written out a list of qualifications that he was looking for in a wife, but for seven whole years, he never was in one place long enough to meet anybody, and he traveled all over the world continually, and so again and again and again, he would just say to the Lord, how am I ever going to find this lady? And in those days, of course, men were generally married by the time they were 22, at the latest. My grandfather graduated from college, got married, and got a job all when he was 21 years old. And in my day, which of course was also a thousand years ago, most of the men that I knew in college were married within a year or two after college. And I can look over this audience and realize that quite a few of you are out of college more than just a year. Has God changed? Is it more difficult now for God? to find the right mate for you. Anyway, back to Charles Alexander's story. He was in London, and they had had a campaign, and they had a rest day during that week, and he was invited. Oh, I'm getting ahead of the story. While he was on the platform one evening waiting for the campaign to begin, a very lovely young lady came up onto the platform and gave a testimony. He didn't know who she was, but he was very impressed with the fact that she was very womanly, she had a quiet and gentle spirit, and whatever she said he felt was excellent. So a day or two later he was invited to spend his rest day in a very beautiful home of, of a wealthy lady, and when he got there he asked this lady if she knew the lady that had given that testimony, and she said, yes, she's my daughter. And he said, would you be willing to introduce me to her? And she said, of course. So she introduced him to her daughter, and he took the daughter out for dinner and proposed to her. Now that just seems unimaginable to you, doesn't it? What did he know about her? Of the 11 or 10, 11 things that he had on his list that he was looking for for those seven years, certainly he didn't have a chance to tick them all off. He didn't know her that well. There were just one or two things about her. He thought, here's a godly woman. I like what she said. If God arranges it so that I can meet her, why shouldn't I assume that God is pointing out this woman for me? Well, I'm going to read you another story in a moment. Trust the shepherd. It's not complicated. Why should it not be the woman that's sitting right next to you or the woman be right, sitting right in front of you? Somebody that you've known for years. Maybe you've been making a buddy out of her. Maybe you need to quit that and start treating her like a lady. <laughs> Girls, don't let them do it. Don't be buddies. Now, some of you have read Quest for Love, and I'm glad for that, and I think it'd be nice if all the rest of you would read it, too. Uh, but just, it's a, it's a collection of stories of, of some of the amazing ways that God has brought men and women together without dating. There are some horror stories in here of what the dating game is doing to young people. It was pretty bad in my day. It was nothing like what it is now. And in my mother's and father's day, my mother and father were married in 1921, when my father wanted to court my mother, he had to go to her house and sit in the living room. There was absolutely no thought of taking her out alone. If he was going to take her to a concert or to, a, to dinner, he had to get a chaperone or he had to get another couple. 
And that was a safe and wonderful way that men and women met. And my father had met her, and here's something else that I would love to propagate as widely as I possibly can, but not to this audience. But in those days, very often older couples would invite young people to their homes just for the sole purpose of introducing a nice man to a nice Christian lady. And so this wealthy lady in Philadelphia had often had groups of young people come to her house, and my father was one of those that got invited. And he saw this girl across the table, and he just thought to himself, she looks just like the kind of girl I would like to marry. But he didn't have much chance to see her again until this same lady, who had a summer place up in Maine, invited him to what they used to call a house party. This was something that people often did. They would have big, beautiful houses, and they would invite young people to come for from Friday to Monday. And my father was invited, and he happened to be one of the earlier ones to get there. And the house was on an island, and he went out with the hostess to meet the next boat that was coming across from the mainland. And who should be coming down the gangplank but that same lady on whom he had put his eye at this same older lady's house several months before. And as she came down the gangplank, he said to himself, I am going to marry that girl. Well, that was Friday. And Saturday, he asked my mother if she would go for a walk with him. And she said, sure. And so she gathered together the whole crowd, and they all went for a walk. <laughs> and on the next day, Sunday, he asked her if, if he could take her to church. And she thought, well, what's the matter? What is it with this guy? Of, of course, we're all going to church. So everybody went to church. That afternoon, he said, Catherine, he said, I would like to take you to church tonight alone. And she thought, well, what is it with this guy? You know, I mean, why is he doing this? But she consented. And as they were walking back, he said, will you marry me? And my mother was absolutely thunderstruck. She had had no, quote, relationship. But she had the good sense not to say no. She just said, well, I can't give you an answer. This certainly is a surprise. But six weeks later, she said yes. There was no such thing as a relationship in those days. This is what is so dangerous. Now, let me read you the story of George Mueller. He was also one of those 19th century people. And you may think, this doesn't apply. Here's that old lady up there talking to us. She doesn't know we live in the 1990s. Yes, I do know that. And I know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he knows exactly how to bring the right man together with the right woman if the man is listening. <laughs> if the man is observing, if he is doing what Abraham's servant was doing, praying silently, watching quietly. And of course you're not going to get the one that exactly fits the image that you have in your mind. And you know what? Jim Elliott told me that I did not fit any of his qualifications. <laughs> None. He had made up a list for himself. He wanted a girl about five feet three. He wanted her to have black hair. He wanted her to be outgoing. He wanted her to be athletic. He got none of the above. I was a blonde. I'm five feet nine. Never have I been able to do any kind of athletics. But the day came when God seemed to say to Jim Elliott, that's the girl that I've chosen for you. And so he just let go 
of all that list. And he, told, he wrote and told his mother, he said that he'd met this girl named Betty Howard, and he said, she's far from beautiful. <laughs> and he told me that. <laughs> but I married him anyway. <laughs> Here's George Mueller's story. He tells this story at his wife's funeral. He uses a passage from the Psalms where it says, the Lord is good and what he does is good. So his outline for his little funeral sermon was, number one, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Number two, he was good and did, give, did good in so long leaving her with me. Number three, he was good and did good in taking her from me. And then he tells how uh, he had been asked to preach in a place called Poltimore near Exeter, accepted the invitation, and the lady who had asked him to preach gave him the address of Mr. Hake, a Christian brother who had an infant boarding school, in order that I might stay with his, in his home. To this place I went at the appointed time. Miss Groves was there. This occasion led to others. Thus I went week after week to Exeter, each time staying in that house. All this time, my purpose had been not to marry at all, but to remain free for traveling about in the service of the gospel. But after some months, I saw, for many reasons, that it was better for me as a young pastor under 25 years of age to be married. The question now was, to whom shall I be united? Miss Groves came before my mind. Now that is a simple statement, isn't it? Miss Groves came before my mind. But the prayerful conflict was long before I came to his decision, for I could not bear the thought that I should take away from Mr. Hake, his valued helper. Apparently, Miss Groves was a secretary or something. As Mrs. Hake continued still unable to take the responsibility of so large a household. But I prayed again and again. At last, this decided me. I had reason to believe that I had begotten an affection in the heart of Miss Groves for me. Wouldn't it be nice if he had gone into detail as to what reason he had to think that Miss Groves had an affection for him? But at any rate, let's just assume that there was a friendly look or two between them. Perhaps he had opportunity to converse with her in Mr. Hake's house. But at any rate, he had reason to believe that he had begotten an affection in the heart of Miss Groves, and that therefore, and this was his immediate conclusion, I ought to make a proposal of marriage to her. However unkindly I might appear to act to my dear friend and brother, Mr. Hake, and to ask God to give him a suitable helper to succeed Miss Groves. On August 15th, 1830, and remember that he had gone to Mr. Hake's house at the end of 1829, so August of 1830, I therefore wrote to her, proposing to her to become my wife. And on August 19, when I went over as usual to Exeter for preaching, she accepted me. The first thing we did after I was accepted was to fall on our knees and to ask the blessing of the Lord on our intended union. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? And I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that the will of God 
is simple. It is not always easy. We have so many barriers, so many preconceived notions, so many wishes and desires and hopes of our own that we are cherishing and clinging to. Let them go. Let go. Give up your right to yourself if you want to be a disciple. That is the first condition. You must give up your right to yourself. You don't have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ if you don't want to be. Jesus just said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself. And that may mean all the things that you've got to do before you get married, all the fun you've got to have, all the places you've got to see, all the thousands of women you've got to look over. And for you women, many of you have good jobs, many of you are very attractive to men, and you've got all sorts of men coming after you. Some of you are not at all in that category. Whatever the case may be, you have your own set of hopes. Will you surrender them to Jesus Christ? If you want to be his disciple, he says, give up your right to yourself. Then he says, take up the cross. And I can testify that the taking up of the cross is a daily requirement. And Jesus said so elsewhere in the Gospels. Take up thy cross daily. Every single day there's going to be something that crosses your will. And there is no more fruitful area in which that is going to be tested than the area of marriage. Because no matter how perfect that mate may be that God has given to you, you're going to find out within 24 hours after the wedding that the prize package that you chose turns out to be a surprise package. And there are going to be a whole lot of things that you didn't know about that person. Now, I knew Jim Elliott for five and a half years before we got married. I knew Addison Leach a much shorter time than that. But I knew Lars Grin had an opportunity to get to know him, very unusual opportunity, because I rented out two rooms in my house after my second husband had died. And I got two seminary students who came and lived in those two rooms. And they stayed for two years. And the first one married my daughter. And the second one married me. Now, when a friend of mine who lives in Fort Worth, she was in her late 70s when her husband died, she wanted to know how in the world I ever got three husbands. And I told her my story about how number three came along. He lived in my house for a couple of years. And right away she said, I believe I'm going to rent my house out to three widowers. <laughs> but I had opportunity to observe this man for two years in my home. Very rare opportunity that a woman would have. And of course, at that time, I didn't have the foggiest idea that he would ever be my husband and that he would be the head of that house that belonged to me. But there have been surprises in every case. And giving up your right to yourself is a very good place to start. And then you begin taking up the cross, which means acceptance of small duties which are distasteful to us. John H. Newman said, the taking up of the cross is no great action done once and for all. It is the acceptance or the faithful carrying out of small duties, which are distasteful to me. And marriage is going to hold a lot of small duties, which are distasteful to both the man and the woman. 
And then Jesus says, the third condition of discipleship is follow. Obedience. One day at a time. I challenge you today to surrender your desires, to trust God to bring you the right person at the right time. And sometimes I just think it would be, just be a great idea in a group like this, line up all the men on one side, have you count off, line up all the women on the other side, have you count off, and then just put the ones and the twos together. And that just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But it's really much simpler than you think it is. May God give you grace to trust and obey and to follow him. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>